Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Have you ever done that thing where you are having the most amazing entree at the most amazing restaurant, but you know that it's going to come to an end at some point, and so for the entire meal, you've been preparing and measuring every bite in preparation for that last bite. Because you know that last bite has to be the choicest bite. It's got to have the most balance, uh, most perfect balance on your palate. Because that last bite has to send you and sail you into gastro euphoria. And that's why it's such a crime, everybody, um, if you stole that last bite from someone else's plate, uh, because you'd really be robbing them of a piece of heaven. Well, we arrive at the most momentous bite, if you will, in all of Isaiah's prophecy, and maybe even all of the Old Testament, and even the entire Bible. If Justin Hammer from Iron Man 2 could describe Isaiah 53, he would describe it as his Eiffel Tower, his Rachmaninoff's third, his Pieta. It's completely elegant and bafflingly beautiful, and it's capable of reducing the population of any standing structure to zero. To quote someone of actual importance here, uh, Charles Spurgeon, an English Baptist preacher known as the Prince of Preachers, said this of Isaiah 53. This is one of the chapters that lie at the very heart of the scriptures. It is the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes from our feet, for the place whereon we stand is specially holy ground. This 53rd of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed essence of the gospel. True statement. Um, Isaiah 53 is a song written in poem, and uh, it, the, the chapter is comprised of five stanzas. And if you were to uh, pick a theme for each of those stanzas and read those themes in succession, you would have the whole gospel story because it would read something like astonishment, rejection, substitution, silence, and justification. You just have the gospel there. One commentator says that Isaiah 53 is so replete with gospel truth that those who read the passage for the very first time might think that they were actually reading the New Testament. And mind you, this is a piece of prophecy about the coming Messiah from seven centuries before he would come, which is mind-blowingly remarkable in and of itself. It's completely majestic in its description of the Messiah, who will be referred to as the servant of God, and his role in the redemption of the whole world. And if we're keen to it, we have to be aware of the fact that this most momentous passage is coming to us at the most momentous year in recent human history. And if we look carefully, we'll see that the passage speaks so clearly to our historical and cultural moment. 
It's totally and absolutely relevant because it provides for us the most definitive solution to evil, injustice, and suffering. In some ways, no sermon introduction can do justice to the eternal significance of this passage, and we'll only actually have time to scratch the surface here because I'll be taking us through just the first three verses, just that first stanza of this monumentally important uh, chapter in the Bible. And these three verses, um, in these three verses, I want to show us the following three things. Uh, First, the astonishing wisdom of the suffering servant, the astonishing appearance of the suffering servant, and the astonishing results of the sufferings of that servant. So the wisdom, the appearance, and the results. Let's take a look at the astonishing wisdom of the suffering servant. Our passage starts like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We're told at the onset that the servant of God is coming and he's coming with action and that action is going to be utterly wise. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So we're given a picture here of the coming servant and everyone should look out for when the servant of God comes because when he comes, he is going to come with wisdom. And what that wisdom is going to look like is the servant of God is going to be high and lifted up. So if you want to see the full display, the awesome display of God's servant and wisdom coming from eternity, well, watch out for the servant who will be high and lifted up, is what Isaiah is saying. Now take these two words for a moment, high and lifted up. It's these Hebrew words, room and nasa. Now these two words used together in construction happen only four times in all the entire Bible, and all four times it happens in Isaiah. And the reference is always to the Lord or Yahweh, high and lifted up. But in this passage, and this time only, the reference isn't to Yahweh or to the Lord, but it's actually to the servant of God. And so the astonishing wisdom of God is this, that the servant of God has the same description as God. And the astonishing reason for that is that from all of eternity, the wisdom of God was this, that the servant of God would be God. Now, this has major implications because 700 years later, Jesus would would say and do things that only God could say and do. He exercised power over demons and, and over storms, over creation itself. He walked on water. He healed the sick, the blind, and the lame, even forgiving sins. And at this, they said no one but God could forgive sins. But with the eyes of faith, This passage tells us that when we look into the face of Jesus, we're really looking into the face of God because Jesus was God. This was the astonishing wisdom from all of eternity that the servant of God would be God himself. Now, this can encourage us in so many different ways. Let me give us uh, just one example. Uh, Have you ever wondered, uh, what if you don't go to heaven? 
as a corollary, how, how do you know you're saved at all? And is there any kind of assurance that you can have of salvation in this life? And probably what's kicked up these quandaries for me, in addition to just the apparent sermon preparation for today, is the fact that I might be watching Grey's Anatomy on Netflix. Uh, Meredith Grey, she is the main character. She's a surgical intern. And her mother, Ellis Grey, was a pioneer in the field of surgery. But her mother has amnesia. And so for the better part of season one and two, Meredith is um, shy about introducing people to her mother and telling people that her mother has amnesia and that she's been reduced uh, to a nursing home and she's a little bit embarrassed about her mom, which she feels bad about. Uh, but it's because her mother was uh, this highly influential expert in surgery. But I got wondering, what if I got amnesia and went in and out of faith convictions? Because right now in grace, I really do believe in God and that his son is my salvation. Jesus is, that he's both my creator and my savior. But what if my profession of faith faltered? Like if my profession of faith wasn't good enough, it wasn't uh, it wasn't satisfactory enough because my mind faltered because of some physical inability. Because truthfully speaking, at the end of my life, when I'm standing before God and he asks me for an account of my life, I want to be able to give the very best profession of faith that I can. I want to be able to give the gospel in less than a minute with perfection so that I get into heaven. Uh, because doesn't my eternal destiny hinge on that? Well, no, it doesn't. Because do you know that it's not really about the perfection of your profession of faith that saves you, but it's your God who saves you. And he's the one you're putting your trust in. So it's not about like acing an exam, but saying, I don't know much. And my faith really wasn't that strong in life. All I know is that Christ is strong and mighty to save me even a wretch like me. You know what brings me back from these occasional nights of terror, and I'm, and I'm speaking as a pastor here, right? But these doubts come and go for all of us. But you know what brings me back every time? The words of Jesus that we find in John chapter 10, 28, when he says, I give them eternal life and they will not perish and no one will snatch them from my hands. Now, words like this wouldn't assure me if Jesus was simply a moral teacher or an ancient sage with some elevated state of consciousness. It would only reassure me if Jesus, the servant of God, was God, the creator and savior, with both power and compassion. The astonishing wisdom is that the servant of God would share the divine description and character because he was God. And this was the much anticipated coming Messiah, the servant of God. But Isaiah prophesies that though he would come with wisdom and glory as God himself, his appearance would be nothing like what people imagined it would be. What would be so astonishing about his appearance. 
That's what we turn to next, the astonishing appearance. You know, the the sad truth of it all was that when the servant of God did come as God and was high and lifted up, and that's how you knew that he came, he wasn't met ultimately with fanfare, with people bowing down in worship, offering gifts at his feet, uh, like you might expect a king in royal procession. People were actually repulsed in astonishment. Read with me verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It says that they were astonished at his appearance. And this word astonished carries more force in Hebrew because this word means to be shocked. It means to be devastated. It means to be completely stupefied. You know, ever look at something so horrific that you actually couldn't take your eyes off of it, but it just devastated you. It made you sick to your stomach. Well, that's starting to get at it. It was reviling and it was sickening to look at. Well, why? What happened there? This passage is referring to Jesus who was high and lifted up as the servant of God, as God himself, as the king of kings but not on a throne as he deserved, but on a rugged and splintered cross. And the reason his appearance was so marred was because his face and body was completely brutalized onto it. Look again with me in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What does this mean that his appearance was so more that it was beyond human semblance? Well, we're told in the Bible that man was created in the image of God. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus wasn't created in the image of God. He was the image of God. Colossians 1.15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Meaning he was the image of God because he was the begotten son of God. He was the son of God, the child of the father. But physically on the cross, he was so badly beaten and battered to a pulp that you can tell if you're looking at a human being or a piece of meat. Just to give you a little bit of a scope about the kind of suffering, the physical torment that Jesus suffered Uh, Here's a little bit of the physics of Roman scourging. Scourging would have probably happened by some Roman soldier who was ordered by his superiors. And and Jesus, we're told in the scriptures, received 40 lashes from uh, the scourging. The scourging would have involved an instrument called a flagrum, which would have been these cords of leather weaved together with bone and metal. And as the Roman soldier would scourge Jesus... The, 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 the shards of bone and metal would dig into his flesh and rip flesh off to the point that you would see muscle and bone. Just imagine the, the, the nerve pain of what Jesus went through. It would have stripped skin off his back. There would have been extreme blood loss, severe weakening of the victim, perhaps to the point of near death, if not death. And then afterwards, 
He's led almost like a procession, flayed to the inches of his life. And we're told in Matthew 27, 27, Jesus is taken to the governor's headquarters and there gathered the entire battalion, which would have been a tenth of a Roman legion, 600 men. This wasn't going to be a private ceremony of execution. That would have been way too much dignity, but it would have meant uh, it would be a public spectacle of ridicule. And it was here that Jesus receives his crown, but not a crown of gold as he deserved, but a crown of thorns, which would have covered his entire scalp. These thorns may have been one to two inches long, and they continued to hit him over the head, it said, causing severe bleeding as these thorns would have pierced his temples deeper and deeper and deeper. At that point, there would have been so much blood, you couldn't recognize his face. It would have been an appearance so marred. But you know, there was something more devastating for Jesus on the cross. The biggest torment of the cross for him, the thing that just broke him. You know, the image of God is what makes you truly human set apart from everything else in creation. It's what makes you different from a rock or a waterfall or a frog. And Jesus became human, the only begotten Son of God, truly. But when we are told that Jesus' appearance was so marked beyond human semblance, beyond that of the children of mankind, we're being told that he lost something that made him human. And he lost something that he had from all of eternity, and that was the right to be called the child of God. His physical marring spoke to his loss of title of sonship in the sense that his father, and though he was the darling of heaven from all of eternity, the child so dearly loved by God through the ages, that he was being disowned, abandoned, forsaken by his father. And this was the terrible justice of God that Jesus was experiencing on the cross. He was being rejected not only by men, but by his God. This was the sentence of holy judgment and the punishment was cosmic, solitary confinement. Loneliness to the uttermost of emotional, psychological, and relational limits. One thing's for sure, whatever attractiveness Jesus had from all of glory, he gave it up for an appearance so marred. And this was his father's will. So much blood, so much violence on the cross. What could this possibly produce, you would ask at this point? We turn to the final point, the astonishing results of the suffering of the servant of God. What possible good could result from the blood, the guts, and the horrific sight of the cross accomplish? Well, we're being told by Isaiah that all this had to happen because the gruesome side of the cross actually tells us that the horrible things that happened there for Jesus won't happen to us. Let's take a look at our final verse, verse 15 together. 
So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Jesus' glory in his being lifted up and exalted on the cross will result in the sprinkling of the nations, it says. What's this? The sprinkling of the nations, this language of sprinkling. Well, we find that language in Leviticus 16. Um, One man every year on one day from one nation uh, would enter into the Holy of Holies, this inner room in the temple that housed the glorious presence of God. It was the high priest that would enter in, but always with a bloodied sacrifice in his hands. And he would take the blood and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it would signify the forgiveness of sins for God's people, Israel. But now we read in this passage, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations, meaning that the sprinkling of blood, the forgiveness of sins that was supposed to be for Israel, God's people, is now a blessing that can be shared by the nations. And of course, that word nations in in Hebrew is goyim, which means nations. And that blood for sprinkling would not come from the blood of animals, but it would come from the hands and feet of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would be slain on the cross for you and me. And that's what the bloody mess of the cross, the pure and so marred, was all about. What Jesus was doing is offering himself up as the final, once and for all payment, sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins in our place. Jesus suffered evil, injustice, and suffering, and the terrible and holy justice of God becoming so marred beyond semblance of humanity so that we could become truly human. We could be truly the children of God. And so, John's words ring true in our hearts today when we see the servant of God with the eyes of faith, the wisdom of God, God himself approaching. When John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As we close here, just a couple of thoughts. One is uh, to those who are living in a life of sin. Behold, the astonishing appearance of the servant of God, the one who bled and suffered and endured the terrible justice of God in your stead. And let the blood and the beauty of the cross bring you back to God. Repent of your sins because Jesus paid the price so that you could be forgiven and to be accepted back home. And then finally, for those who've suffered evil, injustice, suffering, racism, even death of a loved one, perhaps, I can't tell you exactly why you're experiencing all these things. All I can say is offer, I'm sorry, and I'm here for you if you need. But if you've, as a result, began questioning the goodness 
and even the existence of God because of your suffering. Consider the words of French philosopher and journalist Albert Camus, who is actually a non-Christian. But listen to what he has to say about Christ's sufferings. Christ's solution consisted first in experiencing them. The God-man suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows, the divinity ostensibly abandons its traditional privilege. Live through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. Thus is explained the Lama Sabachthani and the frightful doubt of Christ in agony. You know, if you feel like God has turned his back to you and has forsaken you, listen to the words of Camus again, who tells us that even though we don't know the reason for why you're suffering and, and why God is continuing to allow you to suffer it, we have a Savior who suffered, bled, and died for you. It's not that he doesn't see you, and it's not that he doesn't care about your suffering. I can't tell you exactly why. But what we know for certain is that he suffered too in your place. Look to him, everybody. Behold, the servant of God who bore your sin and shame so that you wouldn't have to. Let's pray.